The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Notice the title of today's sermon is, we're doing a series. We started last week, and, and today, and then when we come back in January, we'll continue for just a few weeks on back to the basics, I'm calling it, back to the basics, basics of church life, just basic Christianity, which I thought would be a good thing to do. We just spent two years in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and uh, did a lot of exposition of Paul's didactic theological teaching. And now I thought it would be good after, we're going on 10 years of our church beginning, and last week I had asked for a show of hands of those of you who have come to GBF just within the last five years, and there were almost 50% of the hands went up. So it was a good reminder of we need to go back to the basics occasionally just so that we're all on the same page of the priorities of church life, priorities of the Christian life, basics of the Bible. We just can't take that for granted and assume everyone is always on the same page. We're all on different places in the spectrum of our spiritual development and maturity and understanding of God's Word in the church. Last week we talked about, in terms of church basics, what basically the basics are what are the priorities that a local church needs to be emphasizing by way of ministry and teaching? That's all it is. When we started our church almost 10 years ago, Grace Bible Fellowship, we had we called them our distinctives. What are the biblical distinctives of Grace Bible Fellowship? If you were going to come and look at it, and what is your church about? We have these distinctives that we, we weren't trying to be distinct or different from other churches. It was really is what are the priorities according to the Bible that a church should be doing? And we call them distinctives because not all churches do these basic priorities for whatever reason. Uh, you can't compromise on these issues that we're talking about, including the message today. Because Scripture is clear on what God expects from His church. So last week the first priority was elder shepherding. In other words, just to summarize last week, Every obedient biblical church needs a plurality of qualified elders. That's the leadership. Sets the tone for everything. We showed how that's clear in Scripture. And some churches just simply don't do that. So we're going to look at number two, uh, back to basics, priority number two. These aren't in necessarily order of priorities among the uh, distinctives we're going to share, but they are all equally important. But number two that we're going through is church discipline. Every biblical, healthy, obedient church needs to be practicing church discipline. That's what we're talking about today. I'm going to try to go through six points on this. Again, this is not exhaustive. This is just uh, some of the main truths laid out in Scripture. be very impossible to cover it exhaustively in just one sermon. There's so much to say about it. We will go through these six points that are priority. So every church needs to practice church discipline. Some of you might be thinking, what is that? In other words, you don't have any experience being at a church where they practice church discipline, whatever that is. That's understandable. I was a pastor at at least two different churches in years previous where at least two churches didn't practice church discipline. One of them 
didn't even know. I was an associate pastor on the staff and went there and became a part of the church and the leadership team and quickly came to realize, wow, these guys in charge, the leaders of the church, they called themselves deacons. They had no elders. They had no concept of church discipline. Didn't even know what it was. Didn't even know what was in the Bible. And But fortunately, these men that I worked, it was a relatively new church plant. But when I showed to them that it was in the Bible, they were actually, oh, then we should probably be doing that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You guys are the leaders. And by the way, there should be elders in the church. Well, what are those? Well, they're right here. Oh, wow, we should be doing that too. And probably, I didn't stay there the whole time, but I began to enlighten them. And over the course of the next five to ten years, even after I left, they implemented a plurality of elders in their church and church discipline. And today, here it is almost 20 years later, it's a healthy church and because I'm still in contact with the church. So, praise God, these were uh, men sensitive to being submissive to Scripture. That doesn't always happen. Because I was also served at another church, same thing. But this was an older and a more established church and got there. And uh, there was a little bit of church discipline in the bylaws and constitution, but it was unclear and muddy and inconsistent and convoluted. And then when it, after I was there for a while and talked to the leadership about it because it needed to be implemented, nobody really knew what it was. It couldn't be done biblically because it wasn't stated in the Constitution or bylaws of the church properly anyway. And then I began to talk about it, and here's what needs to be done. Jesus mandated it. He said so. It's clear in Scripture. And then I was told categorically, well, we're not doing that here at this church. Whoa. This is Jesus' church. It's not your church. It's not my church. Uh, but then I also served at two churches that had it clear. This is clearly what Scripture says, and they did it accordingly. And so that, and it just makes a difference, huge difference in the community of God's people when you're doing it right. So this isn't like a tangential secondary issue. This really is a priority. Of Because of uh, God's glory, he said so, and the maintenance of his church. Uh, so that's just a quick overview. Before I get into the first point of the six, just I want to explain or give a definition of discipline. I say the word discipline, and we're all over the map here in terms of what you think. So we have to have a common definition when we say every church needs church discipline. Every church needs to be practicing biblical church discipline, biblical, key adjective, biblical church discipline. There are churches that do discipline incorrectly, either um, uh, not enough of it or they do it in an illegitimate, heavy-handed manner. It needs to be biblical, the way God designed. But discipline, definition. Basic uh, root meaning to train, to teach, to instruct, to educate. That's it. So in light of that, it's not primarily a negative term, although it has negative nuances to it. Sometimes when we think discipline immediately, people are thinking spanking and tears and crying and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, that's not the only word. As a matter of fact, as it's used most commonly, the word disciple. By the way, uh, discipline is related to the word disciple. Jesus had disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple was just a student. That's really what it means in the New Testament. A student, a learner, a follower. Someone deliberately who sat under the teaching of someone. A rabbi, a teacher, whatever. And it's not even an intimate relationship necessarily, but the emphasis is on the fact that they were learning from a mentor. Uh, so the word disciple, first and foremost, in the definition, in the three words, disciple, discipline, and discipleship are all interrelated in the New Testament. And the common theme there is on to learn, to teach, to instruct, to grow. 
And when it is fleshed out, discipline can have a negative connotation to it, and it does in Scripture. The word discipline is actually used in Isaiah 53 in the Hebrew, but also in the Greek version of that in the Septuagint, where Jesus was disciplined on the cross by God the Father in Isaiah 53. And that referred to physical, corporal chastening or punishment. And the word, the form of the word used there is discipline. So it does have that negative connotation, not only a negative connotation, but a negative physical, corporal component to it. So uh, discipline is a big word, mainly uh, to teach. From God's point of view, we discipline positively and negatively, verbally and physically, to teach, to educate, to help people grow. So that's the definition that we're going to use uh, as given in Scripture. So with that, let's go and look at these six summary points from God's Word together. We will be flipping to uh, different Scriptures and ask you to follow along. The first one is just the need for discipline. Like I said, there are many churches that don't know what church discipline is. They don't practice it. They don't invoke it. Um, they don't follow through on it. I am particularly reminded of where I went to church years ago. Grace Community Church is when I was a new, younger believer. I was there for about seven years and a member, and I just remember my pastor, John MacArthur, saying repeatedly and still does to this day that he remembers when he was a new pastor in the 70s down there in Los Angeles. He, he, couldn't, he grew up in the church. His dad was a pastor still. He said he didn't know of a church on planet Earth that practiced church discipline at that time in the 70s. He, just, he knew a lot of churches, a lot of pastors. He just never heard of this. Nobody's doing it. And when he was preaching through Matthew, he got to chapter 18. He was like, this is as clear as a bell. Why are we not doing this? We need to be doing this. Every church should be doing this. And so uh, that's kind of the state of the union back in the 70s, according to him and other pastors, Chuck Swindoll uh, as well, those influential evangelicals. And then over time, uh, for whatever reason, many evangelical churches have begun to be more and more disciplined or actually obedient to Scripture and actually invoking church discipline and making it basic to their church because it's right there in the Bible. So today there's a lot of good pastors, churches, and writings on this issue uh, to help us, and it just it's an absolute priority. So if you're looking for a church, uh, one of the priorities, I think, is does this local church practice church discipline? Where is it stated? How is it delineated? Do they do it biblically? Absolutely key. It will determine the health or the lack thereof of the local church. So uh, point number one, let's go ahead and move on. The need for discipline. The need for discipline, uh, simply stated, just sin. Who goes to church? Sinful people. That's one thing we all have in common, isn't it? And if we know Jesus Christ through the gospel, then we have forgiveness of our sin in an ongoing manner. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you don't have forgiveness of your sin, but everybody there struggles with sin, and sin creates a problem. And so anytime you have a community of people or social interaction, inevitably sin is going to rear its ugly head and affect relationships in your one-on-one relationships, in your marriage, in your home, in your family, at work, in the community, and in the church. The church is no exception. We have sin. Jesus knew that. God knew that. Jesus tried to prepare his disciples for that, warning them for three and a half years how to deal with sin, confront sin, expose sin. What's the remedy to sin? One of the remedies, according to the Lord Jesus, was church discipline, sin. Uh, Luke 17.3, at the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus simply said to his disciples, who would be, by the way, or the apostles, the first elders of the first church in Jerusalem, 
And part of that training of them in their seminary education before they planted the church of Jerusalem and became its leaders and their elders, he was trying to give them a philosophy of ministry that included church discipline to preserve maintenance in the church. And part of that is in Luke 17, the parallel passage being in Matthew 18, where he talked about the discipline process. In Matthew 18, Jesus mentions the word church. Only two times in the four Gospels is the word church mentioned. Only two times. That's amazing. And those two times are in the Gospel of Matthew. They're both at the end of Jesus' ministry. They're both in the context of Jesus talking to his apostles as he's about to leave, and it's preparatory for them. Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church. hasn't been created yet. It's going to start on Pentecost. And then uh, chapter 18 of Matthew says, I will build my church and You need to give maintenance to the church through church discipline. And so he lays out very clearly the church discipline process in Matthew 18 to his apostles. And then they incorporated that in the New Testament, and it's fleshed out through the rest of Scripture in the Bible. So Luke 17, Jesus said, in a summary statement, he said to his apostles, if your brother sins, your brother, someone who professes to be a fellow believer, a fellow Christian, your brother, someone you know, If your brother sins, rebuke him, confront the sin, hold them accountable, be deliberate, be proactive, be specific. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That's church discipline. So at the heart of the definition of church discipline is accountability for a behavior, accountability for sin. Uh, And then the beautiful statement that follows that, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. That's a great summary of the discipline process. Confronting sin, rebuking it, a call to repentance. If there's repentance, there is forgiveness, full forgiveness. Forgiveness, in the words of Jesus in Matthew 18, from the heart. Not a superficial forgiveness, from the heart. That's a supernatural act of Almighty God through the Holy Spirit in the heart of a believer. That is the only way we can truly forgive people from the heart. So sin, sin is an ongoing reality. Now it will be in the church. Paul, I wanted, I do want to go to this passage, Acts chapter 20. We went there last week, but I do want to highlight. Uh, Paul gave a warning, the apostle, in Acts chapter 20, when we saw last week how he's talking to elders. There was a plurality of elders in the church at Ephesus. He gives them a warning. He tells them how to be shepherds, pastors, overseers. One of the things that he told them is their basic duty. One of the basic duties of church leaders is to make sure that the church discipline process is being practiced in the local church. And that's what he said in Acts 20, starting at verse 28. He's talking to a plurality of elders, the church of Ephesus. This is a command. It is an imperative. It is an obligation. It is not an option if you're a pastor or an elder at a church. This is basic to your job description. He says in verse 28, be on guard. Be on guard. He's talking about sin entering the church, dealing with that sin accordingly. Part of that would be the process of church discipline. Be on guard for yourself as a pastor. Be on guard for what with myself? Well, temptations from without and temptations from within. Sin. Watch out for sin and how it affects you in your own life. And not only you, it starts with you, but also for all the flock, all the sheep, every person in your church. Be on guard. Watch out. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. He gets more specific. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, 
which he purchased with his own blood. Here's the problem, verse 29 and 30. What do we need to be on guard for, Paul? Well, here it is. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. It will be relentless. It will be perpetual. It will be all throughout history till Jesus returns. Satan and his minions will be continually attacking the church and attacking the church from outside. Whether they're just categorical false ideologies or whether they are masquerading as Christians and hijacking our vocabulary and even our Bible, but attacking from the outside with false theology, false teaching, false influence, and even false and immoral behavior. That's what Satan is trying to do, and he does it through people. Watch out, be on guard for that. So attacks from without, and then he goes on and says... um, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then verse 30, so that's from outside. And he says, and from among your own selves. That's even more scary. That is scarier. From among your own selves. From within the church. From among the brethren. Attacks will happen continually and perpetually. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. See, they're going to be religious They're going to mention the name of Jesus. They're going to say they believe in the Bible. They will be hard to discern. Wow, that sounds scriptural. That sounds biblical. He's such a nice guy. I used to know him. He was my friend. He was a leader. He was a deacon. Whatever it is. So that's just sober reality. Sin. And it's always going to be with us. Hence the need for discipline. Uh, Number two, the mandate for discipline. Why do we do it? Why do we do church discipline? Simply because Jesus commanded us to do it. So first point there, the mandate for for discipline is from Jesus. Jesus said to. Jesus said to. It's a command. We already referred to Luke 17, 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Well, I don't like to, I don't like controversy. Uh, That, people say that a lot. Well, so you're complaining about this person behind their back for how they offended you and you're gossiping about them and you're telling me and 17 other people, have you talked to this person yet? No. Why not? Because I don't like controversy. Wow, you're stirring up more controversy now by gossiping and not talking to them. That's really an excuse, actually, when someone says, I don't like controversy. It's, I don't have the courage to be obedient. Or maybe it's, I like gossip. It makes me feel good or whatever it is. But this is a mandate from Jesus. Uh, rebuke the person that sinned. We're going to talk about how exactly to do that. But that came from Jesus himself. And then Matthew 18 is another imperative or command. It's from Jesus. Command from him. First Timothy. Do look at, go to Second Timothy chapter 4, if you've got your Bible, to see that the command to discipline is from the Lord Jesus himself. Again, here we have a command from the Holy Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to And through an apostle, Paul, who speaks with the mouth and the authority of Almighty God, as it's written down in Scripture, he's speaking to a pastor or elder, Timothy, who has a delegated authority over local churches. And he tells Timothy, chapter 4, 2 Timothy, verse 1, I solemnly charge you as an apostle, because that's the way he started out the epistle. So really, God says, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. See the authority there? And of Jesus Christ, see, it comes from Jesus. 
who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and by his kingdom, what is the mandate? What do you solemnly charge us to do, Paul? Well, preach the word. How? Be ready in season, out of season. And with the word of God, with scripture, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Now, how warm and fuzzy are those three terms? Because this is what an elder preacher, leader of a church is supposed to do. Now, we're also supposed to be kind and patient, all those things. But right here, one of the main responsibilities is to preach the word of God and bring it to bear on the hearts and the lives of people. And it's manifest here with these three verbs, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Those are three terms of bringing correction, which is essential in the discipline process. Every step along the way, doing it with great patience. Be patient with people. Be patient with sinners. Be patient with unrepentant people. Be patient. Wait on God. Uh, and instruction. Be thorough. Be clear. Teach according to God's word. Comes from Jesus, though. Uh, now, and then look at Revelation 2 and 3. I'm not going to read all of Revelation 2 and 3, but, you know, if you have time, just by many of you have read it, but by way of reminder, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus himself, glorified Jesus in heaven, is talking to Seven churches in Asia Minor. Real historical churches. And he's acknowledging their strengths and their weaknesses. He's providing words of encouragement. But one thing he also does to five of these churches. Five of these churches uh, were grossly disobedient in certain areas. Five of these local churches. And Jesus doesn't hold back. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 in the church of Ephesus did some good things right. They had some good theology. They didn't tolerate heretics. But they had some weaknesses because in verse 4 of Revelation 2, he says, I have this against you. So this is Jesus disciplining his own church, disciplining the flock, disciplining professing believers. And he says, I have this against you. He is clear. He's categorical. There's no ambiguity. This is the sin. And that's what we do. We point it out and we, we expose the sin with the scripture like Jesus did. And then he gives a call to repentance. At the end of verse 5, he says, repent, repent. Repent. That's what you do in the church discipline process. It is a call for professing brothers and sisters in Christ to come to repentance to Almighty God for the sin that they have committed against God as delineated in Scripture. And so Jesus uh, disciplines the church of Ephesus. He uh, disciplines the church of Pergamum in verse 12 of chapter 2. I have a few things against you. Verse 16. Repent. Get this. Or else. That's a threat. Jesus is the judge. I will make war against, get that, I will make war against my sinning church with the sword of my mouth. Whoa. That's frightening. He disciplines the church of Thyatira, verse 18. I have this against you. And then he calls them to repentance in verse 21. Uh, he rebukes the church of Sardis and disciplines them and calls them to repentance in chapter 3, verse 3. And then he just unloads on the church of Laodicea because of all their compromise. And he says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth if you keep compromising. I advise you to repent, verse 18, and specifically tells them how. So that's church discipline. Jesus is the model. He is the master. He's the one that mandates it. Hence, point number two, the mandate for discipline comes from Jesus himself. By the way, it is his church. It's his church. You don't have the authority as a person, a human being at a church to say, well, we're not going to do that at this church. This is our church. This is my church. No, it's not. This is Jesus' church. The mandate for discipline from Jesus and also it is by the church through the authority of the church. Uh, the local church has the authority to uh, invoke discipline and carry out discipline against fellow professing believers within the jurisdiction of 
the church and the believing community and those who profess to know Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 18 and 20, which we'll get to specifically later, where Jesus lays it out, he says, if there's a discipline issue uh, and it's between one-on-one believers and that doesn't get resolved there and then it becomes a little bigger and then you got like four people involved if that doesn't get resolved among four believers then you literally you take it to the church it needs to be told to the church the church is the authority to deal with sin issues mediation reconciliation within the believing community of the christian church in keeping with the bible that is the proper jurisdiction the church the church is the one that disciplines fellow believers for sin issues Jesus made it clear, Matthew 18. 1 Timothy 3, 5, an important verse. The Apostle Paul refers to the, the house of the living God. Well, who, what are you talking about, Paul? What is the house of the living God? Well, it's believers who are, and he goes on to describe it as the church. He says the house of the living God is the church, which is the pillar, the pillar and the support of the truth. So the local church, the universal church, is designed by God with delegated authority to be the support and the pillar of spiritual, biblical truth. So that's the context where we do church discipline within the local church. So uh, those outside the church can't be invoking and trying to do discipline on believers regarding sin and what the Bible has to say. There are limited jurisdictions of authority and power, but... Uh, the church has the authority, spiritual, local authority, to deal with spiritual matters in the context of the church or anything really addressed in God's word. And people violate this all the time. Even politicians do that all the time, trying to talk about religion and spirituality and what we should believe and et cetera, et cetera. This week on the headlines for two days, I don't know if you saw it, President Obama, major headline saying that, well, uh, all religions believe the main basic truth that Jesus taught. No, they don't. They don't. That is heresy. That is a lie. And that's a violation of his delegated authority. The president of the United States, regardless of who it is, their authority is limited to the rights of the Constitution and managing that. They don't manage what we believe. So that is a gross violation. And it's actually very deceptive and misleading and actually undermines biblical Christianity. So church discipline is limited to the authority of the local church. So the need for discipline because of sin. Uh, the mandate for discipline, it comes from Jesus in the context of the local church. Number three, the purpose for discipline. I put down three. There's many more, but these are kind of three umbrella terms. So I'll just give you the three uh, purposes for discipline. We have some stated in our bylaws. I think, there's, I think we have five, but these would be inclusive. Uh, the purpose of church discipline, why do we do it? By the way, it is not uh, a nice thing. It is uncomfortable. It is emotionally draining. It separates people. It's tiring it is hard work it is grievous it is not a happy endeavor it weighs down my soul and as a result a lot of people just refuse to do it nevertheless the purpose of discipline contrary to wrong thinking of why people don't do it it's actually a healthy good thing to do uh discipline it provides protection that's letter a We do church discipline for protection. To protect who? Well, to protect the church body from sinners, creating havoc, division, uh, pervasive immorality that would influence others, mocking the name of Christ. So 
discipline protects other non-guilty believers. Get this. Doing church discipline also protects the sinner himself. Really. It protects him from himself or herself. Because many times these sins, they are self-inflicted in terms of the damage that they can do. And the sinner needs help, protection, protection. A lot of other things that we are protecting. Uh, like I said, we're, one of the things we're doing is protecting the sinner himself or herself as we do church discipline with them so that hopefully their sin is exposed. Uh, we commit them to prayer. And really we're calling in to repentance and hopefully the Spirit of God and truth will woo them to repentance. If that does happen and Jesus says it can happen, God makes it happen. And then there should be reconciliation where they are embraced again and forgiven 70 times 7, and that sin is totally forgotten, and they're welcomed back in the body. And then there's restoration. So reconciliation and restoration. Healing. Reinstated. So those all go under protection. Uh, After protection, B, exposure. The act of church discipline exposes sin. Uh, On protection, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that whole chapter is on a discipline matter. And the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthians, we already went over this, that, wow, I can't believe it. They're at your local church. I have heard that you tolerate and allow sin. And as a matter of fact, you're allowing and tolerating the grossest, most egregious sin I have ever heard. It is so gross that even the pagans won't tolerate what you guys are tolerating in your church. And Paul's getting a little upset. And what made Paul upset is you're tolerating it. You're not confronting it. You are not disciplining it. You're not holding the sinners accountable. As a matter of fact, some of you are arrogant and you're glorifying the sin. Why were they doing that? Well, they thought, well, we're Christians. Boy, we're into super forgiveness and you can do whatever you want to do. We're not going to hold you accountable. That is not Christianity. Paul gets that whole chapter five. And so Paul says, get it, get it out. Get the bad uh, influence out right now. Kick it out right now. Stop it. That's a form of church discipline. It was to protect the body, the whole body. Bad company corrupts good morals, said Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians. So protection. Then look at exposure. Uh, church discipline exposes sin first, but then it can actually expose a person's heart. It can expose where they are with God. A lot of people say I'm a Christian, and a lot of people may not even be Christians who say I'm a Christian for whatever reason. They're self-deceived. They're liars. They're... Seeds that we don't know. Only God knows the heart. Look at 1 John 2.19. I'll read it for those of you who don't have Scripture in front of you. Here's the Apostle John who walked and talked with Jesus for three and a half years, probably a cousin of Jesus, the best friend of Jesus, an apostle, uh, writer of many Scriptures for us in the New Testament. Here's John the Apostle, seasoned pastor at this time when he's writing at the end of his life, who's been through many acts of discipline in the local church, he was in Ephesus, I believe, and that was a tough place to be a pastor. This is the end of his life. And so he talks about exposing false people in the church, sinners in the church, going through the church discipline process. But it's a summary, somewhat cryptic statement. We know what he's talking about, though. And he says, some people came, they professed to be believers, and then they left us. They left the church. They no longer identified with us. They either left on their own or they may have been put out by the church through a formal act of discipline. And then they are being shunned by the command of God. These were once professing fellow believers. And John says this, well, no, they're not necessarily believers. They went out from us. They left our church. Why? Because they were not really of us in the first place. 
Now he's talking about the heart. For if they had been of us, a part of us, truly, they would have remained with us. But they went out. They left. They had different priorities. They believed different things. So that it would be shown that they all are not of us. So that it would be shown, the key word, so that they might be exposed for what they truly are over the course of time. Time will tell. Time makes it clear and manifest where people's hearts are at or their priorities are at if you go through the discipline process properly, prayerfully. And in the end, you have exposure. And at the end, especially of Jesus' fourfold process in Matthew 18, what is exposed eventually is that this truly was a Christian who got entangled in a sin, which we all could do, and they were called to repentance, and they were softened and came back to repentance, but their sin was exposed. And one thing that was exposed, that yes, they truly are a believer, but they were in sin. But also part of that exposure may show that, you know what, in the end, this person probably is not born again regenerate, regardless of what they say they believe. They're a phony. They are self-deceived. They are not of us. They are not of Christ they're not a Christian. We need to pray for their salvation. But they have been exposed. And they could very well believing all along they are a believer. That is exactly the case with Judas. For three and a half years, walked and talked with Jesus and the apostles, said he believed that Jesus was his Messiah and Savior. He went out and did evangelism, did miracles, was the secretary of the apostles' bank and the little money that they had. And in the end, he was exposed by Jesus as a fraud who was self-deceived. That is one of the purposes of church discipline by the way this is why is this important for us because in uh, the church context on a personal level this happens routinely it may have happened to you where somebody sins against you they say they're a christian it could be here at church or some other so-called christian you know they sin against you and then the matter is not resolved and as a matter of fact it keeps getting worse and then your relationship there's a fallout and then you have bitter thoughts and attitudes towards this person who calls themselves a christian and then You jump to the conclusion and assume, you know what? This person's probably not even saved. That is totally illegitimate. That is wrong if you haven't done anything to implement church discipline. But it happens all the time. And over the years, 20 plus years of different churches and counseling and working with people as a shepherd, and inevitably somebody will say, oh yeah, this fellow believer, they did this to me and they're mad at me and they're being sinful and somebody needs to hold, and you need to go fix them, pastor. Well, before I do, have you done that yet? Because the sin was against you. And they might say, uh, no, I haven't done that yet. Well, you need to. Well, uh, yeah, I haven't done it yet. And I don't even think they're a Christian. Well, do they profess to be a believer? Yes. Do they profess to believe in the gospel yet? Then how do you know they're not a Christian? Have you gone through the discipline process yet? No. Then you can't do that. That is totally illegitimate. Circumventing the process that God has given. You're not being gracious like God is. You're not being patient because we are all sinful and mess up. We want the same grace and mercy and patience in return, don't we? So that's why Jesus gave the discipline process. It is actually a very gracious process, giving the benefit of the doubt to the sinner that they are redeemed. They have just stumbled into sin, and God is giving them a recourse for repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. So we can't circumvent the process. Uh, And then finally, in Acts chapter 5, the purpose of church discipline is uh, purity in the church. Uh, In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira were two professing believers. I think they may very well have been uh, born-again Christians, even though they were deceived by Satan. Believers can be deceived by Satan. And they had a, a belief in the gospel and in Jesus and the church, and they were a part of the church. And 
Uh, they lied about what they said they were going to give to the church in Jerusalem. And then Peter confronted each one of them on the spot individually, and they fell over dead in church with the rebuke of Peter and the judgment of God. And they, the deacons came, and they dragged Ananias out by the ankles and dragged him out of church. And they just, let's sing the next hymn. And then his wife came in, same thing, later with her. Uh, so that was church discipline. Peter started it. God finished it. It's kind of interesting. In the narrative in the book of Acts chapter 5, after that story, it says everybody in the community was kind of really scared about this church. You go there and you lie, you die. I'm going to go to a different church. (laughs) But Luke's point is one thing church discipline does is it helps purify the church. So purpose of discipline. Uh, What is the motive for discipline? Uh, It's not to be mean. It's not to be unkind. It's not to abuse power be a bully uh the motive for discipline is love and obedience those are the two words love and obedience hebrews 12 6 hebrews 12 god is talking about believers he's talking about how believers all struggle with sin and god as father is talking in hebrews 12 about how he loves his children and because we're all sinners and we there are times where we need to be disciplined chastened punished by god as his children We have baby dedication today. A good, loving parent will discipline their child out of love, chasten their child out of love. The whole book of Proverbs, 31 chapters, is written for parents, how to raise your children. And at least two times in the New Testament, a a verse from Proverbs is quoted, and that's whom the Lord loves, he chastens and disciplines. It comes right out of the book of Proverbs. That's how you raise children properly if you love your children. So Hebrews 12, 6, God himself. It says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges, ouch, that is a painful word. And he scourges every son, which would include son and daughter of the faith, whom he receives and welcomes. What is his motive? Love. To be loving towards someone isn't just to say yes all the time. Yes, you can... Sure, go ahead and um, you can grab the Doberman pincher next door in the face. Go ahead, little honey. Uh, That's not loving. That's at all. That's not protecting your child. No is a powerful word of love sometimes. No, stop here. No, don't go there. No, don't do that. Comes out of a heart of love for their parents who want to protect their child. So Hebrews 12, 6 is categorical. And then... uh, We practice church discipline out of a love for the sinner, the body to protect them, the love for Jesus, the love for his church, the love for almighty God. Everything about church discipline should be from a motive of love. And then John 14, Jesus talks about if you love me, you will obey my commands. He says it two times at least in John 14. If you love me, then you'll do what I tell you to do. And Jesus said you need to invoke church discipline in the community of believers. So that's why we do church discipline, out of love and obedience. Uh, number five, the prerequisites for church discipline. In order to do it, some things need to be in place and need to happen beforehand. Uh, the first one is courage. You need courage to do church discipline. It is not easy to do. It, it is hard. It is difficult. Whether it's one-on-one and you're confronting a friend about something, a family member about something, uh, a friend or somebody at church, that, that is very difficult. It is very distressing. If you lose sleep 
over the prospect of talking to a fellow believer about a sin issue privately, that's actually normal. I'd say that's healthy. Can't be cold and callous. If you are, you won't do it the right way. Not doing it in a spirit of humility and prayer. If you look forward to doing that, I have the gift of discipline. Look out. The spiritual gift of discipline and rebuke. Yikes. That's one spiritual gift uh, I don't like. The Pharisees had that spiritual gift. And that's why Jesus condemned them. But uh, you need to have courage. Samuel did not have courage in the Old Testament when he needed to confront his sons for whatever reason. Paid a very costly price. David did not have courage when he needed to confront his sons of their sin. He paid a costly price. You need to have courage. The book of Proverbs has several verses telling, exhorting parents, come on, parents, you need to follow through on the discipline with your child. If you neglect the rod, you will spoil the child. Why is God telling parents, if you neglect the rod, you'll spoil the child? Because some parents aren't going to do it. And one of the reasons is they lack courage, fear. I've talked to many parents over the years for that very thing. Wow, ooh, this is distressing. Oh, this is hard to do. Really? I, I spank them like on the bottom? Really? They might cry. And they're so little and cute, except when they're sinning. But that's what the Bible says, and so that, that's hard. And it can't be our courage. You've got to pray to God, God, you need to, help. you need to give me the courage. You need to give me the strength to follow through on the truth of your word for the good of this action. It does not come inherently. So courage, we need it. I've worked at churches with other men in leadership at churches who had zero courage and refused to do the church discipline process strictly out of the fear of man. Oh, what are those people going to think? Oh, they might leave the church. They're big donors. They're giving units. Oh, I thought they were sheep. Uh, Prerequisites for discipline. Courage. Scripture. It needs to be done in accordance with Scripture. Scripture clearly lays it out. We need to abide by it. We can't do it in our own way, at our own whim, with our own procedures and preferences. Uh, clearly, through Scripture, we'll see that in point number six. Uh, it needs to be done prayerfully. Look at Galatians 6, which is talking about the church discipline process. Even though many times church discipline process is just step one, which is just between two people, that's all. So if you're actually one-on-one talking to a fellow believer about sin, you're doing the church discipline process. So maybe you have done that before. Maybe you've done it repeatedly. And maybe you're realizing for the first time, oh, I have done church discipline. I have gone to another believer, talked to them about their sin. We resolved it. We worked it out. We forgave each other or I forgave them. That means you have actually done the church discipline process. So you're not a novice after all. Most church discipline happens at level one, step one, as it is anyway. And Galatians 6 says this, brethren, brothers and sisters, everybody here that professes to be a Christian, this is for you. This is for me. This is not just for the leaders. This is not just the elders. This is every person Uh, every Christian's responsibility. Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, if you catch another believer in sin, which is inevitable for all of us, uh, if you catch a fellow believer in sin, you, the individual, who are spiritual, not perfect, but the one who's not in the sin, the one who's in a realm of walking in the Spirit and obedient this very moment, and you're a witness to the sin, then you, you who have your senses about you who are spiritual, restore such a one. I love the phrase there. The goal, the re- restore the sinner, which implies all that stuff. Confront them, rebuke them, call them to repentance. But he uses the word restore as a catch-all term because that's the goal. Not cut them down, 
blackmail them, hurt them, undermine them, deface their reputation. No, it's restore. Beautiful. The heart of God himself towards sinning people who's a loving shepherd. Restore such a one, the sinner, in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of gentleness. How do you do that? It doesn't come naturally. We have got to be in prayer. God, before I go and confront this brother, this sister, you need to help me. Uh, Holy Spirit, you need to help me. Give me the right attitude. Give me wisdom. You need to pray it through. You need to bathe it in prayer. Because our attitude needs to be right. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, the right frame of mind with the right attitude, the right motives. That's what that means. And only God's spirit through prayer can prepare us for that work. And when you do, after you're prayed up with the right spirit of gentleness, you need to be looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted in this sin. And that can happen all the time. Man, we can go and get involved in a sin issue and confront it, and we can get pulled into the sin as well. Because we're, we, are, we could be tempted, we could be vulnerable, whatever it is. We end up in a, a caustic fight or argument, or we end up getting engaged and in indulging in the same sin that that person is, if it's a sin of gossip. Oh, I need to go confront sister so-and-so on gossip. And then you go try to confront her, and the next thing you know, you're gossiping along with her. That's what this means. So be careful, self-reflective, self-examining, God's help. And I just say, we've got to bathe it in prayer, also counsel. Uh, so that we need to have courage. It needs to be according to Scripture. We need to be prayed up. And then a prerequisite is, I'd say, local church membership. I've gone through this very recently. Church discipline of a Christian. Actually, this has happened repeatedly. It happens all the time. You're trying to do the church discipline process of a Christian, a professing Christian, and yet they're not a member of any church. Your, mem- your discipline process has no teeth. It just doesn't hold because they can go to a Christian church, local, sin, do all kinds of stuff, and then as soon as somebody comes to confront and they don't like it, boom, they're gone to the next church. And there's no accountability. And there's no commitment, loyalty, obligation at that local church. There are no consequences whatsoever. They go to the next church, and they're happy there, and they get lost in the crowd and the, uh, and the membership of that church. They don't even know who they are. And, oh, we got another giving unit. Yippee! Really, this goes on. So to do what Jesus said in point number six, if you don't have membership of some sort, you can't really implement church discipline the way Jesus intended. So let's go there, number six, the process of discipline. Uh, there are three ways to go about doing church discipline, depending upon the offense or the sinner's actions. So 1 Corinthians 5 is immediate. The process of discipline can be immediate. In other words, there is no delineated four-step process incrementally over time. It's an immediate call out to repentance and exposure of the sin with no forewarning that discipline is coming. It's like yelling, fire! Really? And that happened in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, fire! There was no, okay, you need to go through step one and then step two and then step three and then meet and have a committee and talk about it and go to the church and go before the congregation, take a couple months, pray some more, then come back, do step number... No. It was immediate church discipline where Paul calls it out publicly, cease and desist and remove the sinner who is unrepentant. 1 Corinthians 5, that would be one example, immediate church discipline. Uh, then there's intermediate church discipline. It has more than one step. Titus 3 through 11. Let me give you the last one. You've got immediate, intermediate, and then incremental is C. Matthew 18 is incremental, step by step. Intermediate, in between, 
Titus 3.9 is one example. There are other examples, but uh, Titus is pretty clear here where you don't do Matthew 18 in four steps. You bypass some of the steps because of the nature of the sin. He says, uh, reject, verse 10 of Titus 3, reject a factious man. Reject a verbally divisive person, whether they're divisive with their behavior or they're divisive with their words. And they won't stop. They're divisive. It's just open and evident to all. Reject. Get rid of that person. Have nothing to do with that. That's church discipline. Reject a factious man after a first and second warrant. See, only two steps. Uh, the behavior's going on. It gets a strong rebuke. It doesn't stop. It gets one more strong rebuke. doesn't stop. Boom, they're gone. That's the church discipline process. That's fewer steps than Matthew 18. 1 Timothy 5 might be in this category as well, an intermediate, quicker uh, pace of discipline, and that's with an elder, an elder who sins. An elder is supposed to be a leader and example. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, uh, and it's there's two verses. Don't make an accusation against an elder without the testimony of other, a plurality of witnesses. That's to protect the elders. And then the very next verse is to hold the elders accountable. If you do have a sinning elder, then he needs to be rebuked publicly before all and put to shame so that others might fear. And again, that's bypassing all four steps in Matthew 18. So that's why I call that intermediate. And then finally, let's go to the last one. And let's go ahead and know, this is probably the most familiar for those of you who know about the church discipline process, Matthew 18. And we'll just go through it in a summary fashion because it's such a priority. Uh, Matthew 18, starting at verse 15. Uh, the Lord Jesus himself, we made a couple of observations on it already. But just so you know, the basics about the church discipline process laid out by Jesus in Matthew 18, it's got four steps, and they're, they're formal, deliberate steps, really. Very specific. There, there's a lot of parallels with each step. In this process, you're not allowed to bypass a step. Many times in the church, we bypass legitimate steps all the time. So we got to go back up. Oh, sorry, you need to go back to step one. Haven't done that yet. Oops, uh, you're trying to get step three. Got to go back to step two. That hasn't been exhausted yet. So Jesus knows what he's doing. So step number one, verse 15, if your brother sins, if you, your brother, and uh, a lot of the pronouns here are singular, so this is definitely one person. If you, your brother sins, uh, Luke 17 implies it's against you. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, singular, in private. There it is. It's one-on-one, privately, nobody knows about it. That is a beautiful thing. That's protecting the sinner, giving them the benefit of the doubt. That's the way it needs to happen. God cares about his body. All of us will be subject to sin. In the church discipline process, God wants to protect our reputation and allow us the benefit of the doubt that we might come to repentance. So step number one, one-on-one, go and talk to your brother privately. If he listens to you, in other words, if he acknowledges the sin and repents and asks for forgiveness... That's what it means. If he listens to you, if he listens to you, if he listens to you, that phrase is repeated three times. You have won your brother. You have forgiveness, reconciliation, and hopefully restoration. End of story. Never to be talked about again. Not to be written down in a sin journal somewhere. Never to be brought up again. That's not love. Welcome back. And that's the grace of 
the Lord Jesus Christ and what he can provide. So that's step one. Uh, 16. And I've had people say this to me. Well, you need to do Matthew 18. Well, uh, yeah, I tried that. They don't, they don't listen. They're not going to listen. Or no, I didn't do that because they're not going to listen. Yeah, did you know that Jesus agrees with you? Jesus knew that when some people were confronted, they would not listen. And that's why he says in verse 16, if they do not listen. So you need to do it anyway. People try to use it. I'm not going to do it. They won't listen. Jesus said, do it anyway. And if they don't listen, here's the next thing you do. Verse 16. Step two. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. You go get those. Go get two other believers to come with you. You give them the information. Here is the sin. Here's where it is in the Bible. Here's where they did it. It's a maximum of two. It's still a small circle. God still wants to protect the reputation of the sinner. Go get one or two people. Bring them with you. Then you confront that sinner just maximum the three of you so a total of four people is all that need to know about the sin at stage two and you confront them over their sin then the two that you brought with you listen to the conversation can be uh, objective listeners maybe even mediators and judges and they can validate the sin then they become witnesses like a jury or a judge for a judge to make a render a decision that is just and legitimate, he doesn't have to be an eyewitness to the crime. And this comes right out of Old Testament law. This is great jurisprudence. This is God's way. This is fair. This is objective. This is systematic. This is protective. This is focused. Based on emotion or vendettas. Step two, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more witnesses with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, that's right out of the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, that every fact may be confirmed. Well, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to the three witnesses, you go to the next step. What is that? Tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Now, implied there, if he does listen to the three of you, repents, again, you forgive him, you've won your brother. End of story, close case. Beautiful thing, celebrate, party fatted lamb or but if he refuses to listen to them then you tell it to the church so now it goes from uh, first just two people knew about it now four people knew about it and by the way this doesn't have to be one time this can be repeated the three of you the four of you are praying you go back you go back again you go back again you're praying you're interceding you're asking for god's help and softening you go back again you're being gracious you're being patient and then they're recalcitrant and they're even hardening their heart then you do step three and that is you tell it to the church and it starts with the elders the leaders of the church Here's what happened. Here are the facts. Here's the process. Here was step number one. Here was the sin. Here's where it violated scripture. We did step two. Here are the witnesses. Here's how it went. Here was their reaction. Here was their response. They become defiant. And we lay it before you as the leaders of the church. This goes on behind the scenes at GBF with the elders all the time. But we protect the church from it until they need to know. When do they need to know? On step three. Tell it to the church. Goes to the leadership. The leadership tells the church. At a minimum, that is the local church of believers. It could include more. Tell it to the church. Uh, and then if he refuses to listen to even to the church, whoa. I mean, that that's hard to believe. A lot of people, most people, 90 plus percent of the time, um, someone will cave under the guilt after step one of getting confronted. That, from my experience. Very rarely, if this is done right, does it go to step two where you get two or three people coming in uh, on this process and usually that does it i've seen it time and time again we're just they're overwhelmed by the oh man they're bringing more people of account yikes i don't want that i repent you are forgiven 
And very, very, even more rarely does it uh, go to the step of telling it to the church. I mean, if it comes before the church, you know this has been a long, arduous process that has gone through many iterations, much prayer, much conversation, stuff you don't see. That's why sometimes when we tell a sin to the church, so-and-so did this, there's shock, there's surprise. This is the first, I mean, literally have people tell me, well, this is the first I've heard about it. Well, that's because Jesus said this is the first time you should hear about it. Because that's what verse 17, which means, oh, we did it right. This is the first time you should have heard about it. Well, how do I know you did it right? See, that's a trust issue. How do you know I, we did it? Really? Why, why did you agree to become a member of the church? It's in our bylaws. It was in the membership class. We've done it before. Jesus said so. If you have to question it, there, there's a huge problem. And again, this is a trust issue. And ultimately, you need to trust the leadership. I know when the church that I started as a baby Christian down in Southern California, where they had 3,500 people sitting in the audience on a Sunday, discipline uh, of this nature, step three, where it was announced to the church, was reserved for communion Sunday. Pastor would... Before we take communion today, I need to announce a discipline matter. Mrs. So-and-so, you all know her, uh, was caught in an adulterous affair with Mr. So-and-so, our Sunday school teacher at our church. Uh, we've taken them through step one and step two, and they have refused to repent. They are in sin, and they need to be rebuked and called to repentance by the entirety of the church. And here are their names, blankety-blank and blankety-blank. Please be in prayer for them. And if you see them, you need to call them to repentance, and that's the only interaction you are to have with them. So if you think the way we do it, kind of behind closed doors, is surprising and shocking, you would be blown away if you ever experienced that. And they do that just about once a month at communion service where their names are announced to thousands of people with people sitting in the pews who are guests and people who aren't even Christians experiencing that. Can you imagine what unbelievers might be thinking when they hear that? Woo! Man, okay, yikes. I already know what kind of sin I'm involved in. If I come to this church, I might be called out and exposed by name from that dude up there on the pulpit. I don't think I'm coming back here next week, but I am keeping my free book for being a guest. So that's what I was introduced to Christianity for seven years. And then at two other churches, churches, the same thing. But that's what Jesus said, tell it to the church. He didn't, he didn't limit that or overly define what that is, the church. So that's... Fine. They want to announce it in the church on a Sunday at communion service. That's the church. And it has its effect. It does its work. Step three, refuse to listen to the church. Uh, So then you go to step four. Now, if he doesn't repent when the entire church is calling them to repentance, you go to step four. What's that? Uh, And that is verse 17 at the end. If he doesn't listen to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile. That is a sinful, unsaved pagan who's not regenerate, or as a tax collector. That is a sinful, the epitome of a sinful, rebellious Jew. In other words, if they don't repent by stage three, when the entire church is calling them to repentance, treat them as an unbeliever. So that's when you can finally say, you know what? I think this person that sinned against me, I don't think they're saved. This is the only legitimate time for you to say that after you've exhausted the first three steps. Then you can say that. They are not acting like a believer. And then even then you don't give up. I've gone through this about three or four times at previous churches. All the way to step four. It happens very rarely. 
The first time I ever encountered it and we took somebody to step four, we treated them like an unbeliever. You know what? We have determined that you are not regenerate because you're not acting like a Christian. You don't respond to the repentance of God's word from the entire church body. You continue in your sin. You've hardened your heart. We love you. We call you to repentance. Still, but we consider you unsaved. So we are now praying for your salvation. And here's a reminder of the gospel. I remember the first time I I did this, and it was with a brother I was discipling and got very close to, who served side by side, shadowing me in ministry to children. It was heartbreaking. Six months later, I got a call from a local pastor. This was in this area. Some so-and-so Baptist church out in this city. I said, yeah, what's up? I got a, a so-and-so here, and he wants to reconcile with you, and he's repented of his sin. And I was like, well, you got to be kidding. Are you serious? Praise the Lord. So I literally, so that pastor invited me. I went to his church. The three of us met. Uh, he gave his apology, his repentance, and just a sweet spirit. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. A miracle of God. It is time to celebrate. Embraced, hug love that i committed him to the care of that local shepherd it was awesome so we, we don't give up we don't even at step four so with that uh, i know that's a lot to digest hopefully i didn't spoil your lunch because that was a happy story at the end <laughs> that is the goodness mercy grace patience supernatural almighty work of god on the heart of a sinner which we all desperately need we thank the lord jesus christ for his beautiful gracious saving gospel and the clarity of his word with that let's go ahead and go to prayer father we thank you for this day another day of life really is an unexpected miracle because from the very beginning you said to humanity if you sin you die And yet you are gracious and patient with us, not willing that any should repent or that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Thank you for that amazing patience and your saving grace. All in the name of Jesus, we give you the glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.